Hello, babes and trolls, kids and queers. Welcome to Millenniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together, we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together, dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. Hi, this is Andrea Glick. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I am a somatic and trauma therapist practicing on occupied Lenape territory, which is known as New York City. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today um, because I've been following your work for quite a while and have really just been trying to figure out how to um, learn about somatic work, learn about healing my nervous system and whatnot um kind of on my own Mm -hmm. so it's just been it's been a bit of a a research um tunnel that i've been in so um i'd love to hear about um what somatic healing work means for you um as a practitioner yeah absolutely um i feel like it means so many different things but i will say first that um, I think that it is the acknowledgement that we have a body and it is the reconnection of that awareness um, as being part of our consciousness and starting to uh, to listen using our body instead of only just our cognition. Sure. Um, so for example, like if we're with somebody and we have a bad feeling in our stomach, but our brain is saying like, nope, this person is supposed to be, you know, our friend or supposed to be good or whatever, um, starting to be like, oh, okay, there's something happening inside of my body that's saying otherwise. I wonder what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and not necessarily like that it's um, 100% right because obviously we're, our body is impacted by trauma. Right. Um, but just starting to have more awareness of an internal experience. Um And I think also um, the understanding that we don't only heal through thinking and talking, um, but that we also heal through feeling our emotions and also feeling our body physically um, and starting to learn about the impact of trauma on the physical body um, and not solely relying on something like the DSM or talk therapy Mm. to Mm -hmm. support us. So it's kind of like the larger idea, but then somatic healing for me can look like a lot of things. So it can sure. look like um, it can look like seeing a somatic therapist. It can also look like engaging in a movement practice that is um, positive and reconnecting to our bodies versus like dissociating from our bodies. Um, it can look like having sex it can look like playing in a bdsm scene it can look like breathing um it can look like so many different things and i think it i'm recently becoming more interested in a more holistic approach so helping clients build networks outside of somatic therapy where they get to experience a somatic connection at all times Mm. um or not necessarily every second of the day but um so that the only place that they feel inside of themselves is in therapy, and that can be more of a normalized and mm. a daily experience. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that's so exciting. Um, so what's what's interesting is I, I I created this podcast initially to talk about personality typology, and the more right. the more research that I've done, the more I'm like, wow, we have really um, we have. There's, there's so much more out there, specifically in our bodies and how we are experiencing one another, how we are experiencing um, individual interactions, how we are experiencing our feelings mm-hmm. um, than just, you know, what can be understood by the frontal lobe, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly, right. Mm-hmm. So I've been learning a lot about um, how, how our nervous systems create patterns that then um, sort of end up creating the stories that uh, of how we engage with one another and with the world. Um, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe can you give me an example? Yeah. Um, so, for example, I as I'm 
kind of studying what's going on in my own nervous system and healing from my own trauma, mm-hmm. um, I'm mm-hmm. finding that um, I I have an anxious attachment, but I'm also mm-hmm. um, I'm very afraid of anyone finding out how anxious it is. So yeah, I yeah. T- I tend to exhibit my anxiety. Um, in sort of a very counterintuitively avoidant way. Um, so the mm-hmm. more stress that I am about a relationship, sometimes I will, sometimes I will bring it up, but sometimes, most of the time, I'm just like stressing about it in my own mind. And then when it comes to actual like confrontation or difficult conversations, I just freeze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah totally it, I mean it makes me think about how we aren't all one thing right so like I have clients say a lot they're like oh what's my attachment style and I'm like all of them <laughs> <laughs> right. um, we all do all of them depending on the situation and the person and I think that people re- you know similar again to like personality types people will feel really heard and understood when they can be categorized because mm-hmm. of just the way that our society is. And I think that can be really helpful. Like, I love astrology for that. I just right. read Johnny Nicholas's new book, You Were Born oh, for This, which is amazing. And I can't she wait. Writes about how, yeah, how astrology is so helpful because people want to feel heard and understood. And um, astrology is a way for us to look at a category, right? So I'm a Virgo and I can see, oh, Virgos are very critical. I'd be like, oh, that's me. I feel so heard and understood. So... <laughs> It can be really nice to be put in a box sometimes. I love my Virgo box. I never want to leave my Virgo box. But then it also sometimes can end up limiting us. um, Right. Where we end up being like, oh, I'm an anxious, I'm an avoidant attachment person when it's we're so much more complex than that. I mean, similarly, even to astrology, where it's like, um, yeah, I'm a Virgo uh, sun and rising, but like I'm also a Cancer moon and I have complexities and my Venus is in Libra and like there's so many other parts to me. Um, So I think the example that you gave just really shows that we can show up in different ways. We can be anxious. We can be anxious to the point that we end up being avoidant, right? Mm. Like it's it's all kind of (laughs) happening all at once. These different, I think a lot about like parts work, which is a therapeutic belief that we contain different parts to us, right? We're not all this like one solid core Andrea. There's like five different Andreas kind of conducting different, um, you know, survival strategies or attachment styles, so I think a lot about that and how if a client is like, oh, I feel like I'm so anxiously attached. I'm like, oh, so there's a part of you that's anxiously attached that's really showing up right now. Mm. You know, what's what's the avoidant part doing right now? Or um, just sort of expanding the way that we understand ourselves to be that we are like multiple things and, and we're not, maybe one part is kind of driving the bus, but the rest of the parts are still in the bus. Sure, sure. No, that's, yeah, that's really interesting and and that internal family systems therapy has really been has been so useful to me in my own like therapeutic Mm -hmm. healing I find that it can be a little bit daunting for people to sort of like step into um because Uh this idea of like there are so many parts of me and I don't know who they are and I don't know where they got developmentally stuck and it can be a little bit it can be a little bit daunting so I guess I'm wondering how if someone um, someone has come to the realization that they need to sort of get to the roots of their trauma or their dysfunction, what is your advice for them on kind of starting that journey? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that I always talk about is that how adaptive we are. So, like, I don't, in my practice, use the word dysfunction because we're not dysfunctional. Like, we're all still alive. Um, <laughs> True. And so it's working, right? Like, the, <laughs> the survival responses and the things that you learned in trauma are serving you. Yeah. Perhaps not in the way that you want to live your life as, like, a um, like person in trauma recovery where you're like, I'm going to love or I'm going to act from a place of security and not trauma. That's my goal. Um, right. But, like, so far, the things that you've done have worked and have kept you alive and have kept you, um, maybe have kept certain people in your life or have kept certain relationships in your life. Um, but maybe you want to transcend the, um, patterns that you developed in childhood or in trauma. Mm. And that is a beautiful place to be wanting to grow and heal. That's awesome. So, um, I, I think that, um, I think psychoeducation, so, you know, understanding trauma, understanding the impact, understanding survival responses, Um, you know, I think, um, all of that 
is kind of the first stepping stone. I think that it's really unhelpful for your therapist if you're seeing someone to be the person who's holding all the knowledge. That Mm. seems really um, unfair and like a power dynamic in which you're always going to feel like you're coming to them to get knowledge instead of um, being able to uh, apply it yourself or know it internally. So I think, you know, really I have clients who their kind of first step into trauma work is like reading trauma, like books on trauma. I think that's right. Um, so just really understanding. And then, you know, um, I think also I would say mixed with that step would also be developing coping skills to manage survival responses. So now that you know what survival responses are and you know what adaptive coping mechanisms are, then you can decide, okay, so, you know, I don't super love that when I get triggered, I drink. Mm. So what are some other coping skills I can develop? I'm now realizing that that's a survival technique that I've been using Mm. because I've educated myself on trauma. So I'm going to find these other ways of regulating my nervous system. And that's my like stabilizing, coping, building my like toolbox of coping skills. Yeah. Um, And then once you have the skills and you have the knowledge, then you can start to say, okay, where did this come from? What is the like root of this in my childhood or in my attachments? Um, and then starting to process that and really understanding the the core beliefs that were formed in those experiences that have led to the way that you feel about yourself now. I love I love the way that you just described that because it's sort of like it, it's taking the the negative connotations out of coping mechanisms. Like we yeah. we understand them to be societally like this bad thing or shameful right. or somehow something that we need to eradicate and you're saying no you don't have to eradicate coping mechanisms from your life just choose ones that are more in line mm-hmm. with the experience yeah. you're trying to have <laughs> mhm yeah yes 100% and also that like you developed these as a way to survive a situation and so nothing about that is ever bad. So like even something like, oh, you know, we'll use drinking as an example again. Oh, my, you know, my drinking is a bad coping skill. Well, it's not bad if it's kept you alive. So <laughs> maybe it's uh, maybe it's a survival and not a thriving, you know, technique. Mm. Maybe it's not serving you anymore. You know, this is the language that I use instead is just like, you know, maybe you're not getting to be your higher self or live in or like live from a place of. Um, being like the full expression of who you are. And that's why you want to develop other ways of coping. Mm. I noticed for me, I I recently took a six-month break from drinking. um, Not because because I think that I was even at a point where I felt addicted to it, but it it just, I was using it, I was using it to, to dissociate from um, painful, Mm -hmm. painful triggers that would come up. Um, Yeah. And... Yeah, I think it's kind of been one of those things where I I sort of allowed that to reset in my body and I've I've gone back to like drinking now but but my relationship to it has short, sort of shifted. Mhm. Yeah. Right. Totally. Um yeah. So something that I feel like we get a lot of in um a lot of the uh mindfulness voices that are out there um, even some like the really positive embodiment voices, we hear a lot about listening to our body. And I think for me, one of the one of the sort of jarring experiences in my healing journey was realizing, oh, listening to my body often means that I'm just constantly receiving danger cues. Um, mm-hmm. So yes, I'm listening to her, to them, and experiencing what they are experiencing. But how can I kind of retrain? How can I kind of retrain myself to to realize? Okay, not everything is red alert, emergency, danger right now. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think that's such an important process to go through was understanding like what are the signals from my body that not I can trust but like basically like what does my intuition feel like and then what Mm -hmm. does my like survival response feel like so it's different for everybody I feel like survival responses usually feel like a little closer to the surface where it's like this sort of like electric like jolt or something so like if someone's Yeah, it's like, again, this is for me. So it's different for everybody. So it's like this more like immediate, yeah, like 
Whereas like intuition is like the core of your gut for me. Mm. That's how it is. So like getting to start to learn the difference between what a survival response feels like and what an intuitive moment feels like. Right. And then also learning your triggers is such a huge part because, and what your triggers feel like. So like if your trigger is, um, if like a trigger is like someone walking too close to you, mm-hmm. um, and you, and then you get triggered and you feel that sort of like electric shock go through your body when somebody gets a little bit too close, you know, you can say like, okay, so my body just had that experience. That's what a trigger feels like. Um, and that's a, that's what that boundary of mind getting crossed feels like. Um, and then mm. if listening to your body feel like around, um, uh, like even like with physical boundaries with friends or something. So like a friend right. is more intimate with you than you want to be. And you feel that sort of like gut, like oh, something's off here. So like just sort of like beginning to feel the difference between like, okay, what is like a trigger feel like? Obviously that could also be triggering, but let's say for example, that it's, it's less triggering. It's more like a boundary crossing that feels like something that's safe to discuss or whatever. So yeah, just sort of like um, being in touch with the nuances of those two things. Um, and also I do find that like a lot of the messages our body sends us, even the survival ones are sometimes really useful. So like, hmm. um, not all the time, right? It's so, like seeing somebody who looks like your abusive ex, for example, and feeling that like electric shock go through your body, like it's not them. And so like that doesn't necessarily serve you, but it is keeping you safe. It, you know, you are, it's hard because it's like that hypervigilance is helpful, but it's also unhelpful. Um, because <laughs> you don't want to feel like that. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. But then to go back to the example of somebody walking too close to you, you know, it's not it's not the worst thing in the world to have a good sense of when people are crossing your physical boundaries. So I think it is really individual for every person. But yeah, there and or even having like grounding statements that you have, like, I'm safe. Everything's OK. That's what a trigger feels like. I'll, I'll say a lot like that's what cortisol feels like in my body. Um, just really like naming what's happening. Hmm. Interesting. I yeah, and I I've noticed for me, and th- this has been, it's hard to not feel like shame around this because so much of like patriarchal society is like this isn't it feels unproductive, but um, mm-hmm. noticing that my first and even sometimes my second reaction to something is are often both survival responses, and then like on the third the third time I check in with myself, then I get like that, that gut knowledge or gut reaction. And I'm just like, damn it. I wish it could have come sooner, but I, I'm learning patience and just trying to notice all of them, all of those responses without judgment, but it's hard. It's not easy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's really like building a muscle around that. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, I, I've seen a couple of your posts about um, a, a few different things that I would love to see if, if, if you wouldn't mind defining, um, mm-hmm. specifically around childhood wounds. Um, mm-hmm. I know that a lot of us who want to be aware and to have healthy, conscious relationship with ourselves and others kind of end up doing this deep dive into our history um, and sort of trying to uncover what those childhood wounds are. Um, How do you define childhood wounds and how do you recommend interacting with them once we find them? Yeah, totally. Um, Well, it's definitely something that I would try and explore in a container. So whether that container is therapy or if you've had, um, if you had a dysfunctional or traumatizing childhood or like a caregiver who struggled with addiction. Um, I really do believe in adult children of alcoholics meetings. They are a really wonderful container. It's not just for folks who had caregivers who are alcoholics. Um, it's, it's for anybody who comes from a dysfunctional family. So for a lot of people, they can't afford therapy, but they want to explore their childhood. And that's actually a really wonderful free container to do that in. Mm. So that's a really great resource, but therapy is also really great. Um, or like a workbook. So there's some really wonderful workbooks out there like the complex PTSD workbook is a favorite of mine so I think if you're gonna do a deep dive into your childhood wounds having some kind of a container somebody to support you is really important um Mm. but uh or even like all three of those (laughs) like that sounds like a great combination (laughs) build Um, like therapy yeah like therapy ACA and then like a workbook that sounds like a great a great thing um 
Yeah, so like it's it's not as you probably know, like it's very challenging and intense work and there's a lot of triggers there and so I think having support um is really important, but when we uncover that, we also uncover our inner child or like the younger, more wounded parts of ourselves. So it is really rewarding work because we get to become this inner loving parent for that very scared or rejected um, you know, little version of us. So it's very, it, it can end up being a very um, loving process. And I think that framing it that way instead of like, okay, I'm going to like, you know, do some shadow work and uncover all like the crazy shit, but being like some people that that language works for them, but I'm more interested in like, I'm going to get to know my inner child and like some pretty like scary things happen to her and I'm going to hold space for that. It's, mm. it's a nice frame. Yeah, I like that. Um, what does... What does reparenting look like for you, um, and how do you mm-hmm. how do you teach your clients to sort of dig in there? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, obviously, it looks it looks different for everybody, um, but I really think about how kids. I'm like, what do kids need? And I used to work with kids, so it's helpful because I'll think a lot about like, okay, what did my what did those like clients need? Mm. Um, and what they need is like someone who's going to tell them that everything's going to be okay. So, like, being able to be that voice to yourself, like, it's going to be okay, like, you didn't do anything wrong, or, like, if you, you know, if, like, you made a mistake, like, everything's fixable, everything's figureoutable. I think a lot of kids who grew up in, and, like, people who grew up in really difficult environments that ended up being traumatizing, one of the core things that they learned was everything's not going to be okay. Right. And how that's actually like such a damaging feeling or belief for a kid to have because that's really all they need. That's like all like you think about like, you know, hierarchy of needs. Like you just need to know things are safe. Right. And so many kids don't get that. You can have a really unsafe living environment or whatever. And if your parent tells you like it's going to be OK and I'm here to protect you and they mean it, that's everything. Like there's there's so many, you know, examples or like research around people, kids who were in really, really um scary, difficult situations, like even like, you know, um, immigrating to another country. And if they had a parent Mm. who was there and was like, everything's going to be okay. We're going to figure it out. Like, I got you. The, the, um, levels of trauma are so much lower in, in kids that had that sort of like loving caregiver. So being able to be, be that for ourselves is like number one. And then, okay, what else do kids need? Kids need routine. So like a bedtime, a made bed, clean clothes, three meals a day, getting to move their body, getting to have fun. Um, so like all those things. I'm like, that's really reparenting yourself is like creating a routine and a living environment in which all of the parts of you are tended to. Um, and your, and your physical needs are a huge part of it. I mean, really like that's the main thing that kids need is like safety, love, and like, and a routine that involves like food that makes your body feel good and enough sleep. Like it's really basic. I think a lot of a lot of recovery is really simple stuff like that. So those are right. some like, those are some things to get started. And then I do, I love the practice of like writing letters to your inner child and getting to hear what they need. And they'll tell you, it's pretty like psychedelic work where you talk to them <laughs> and, and they will, they will respond. It's pretty amazing. It is. Are you a fan of nudes? Yes, this is a trick question. Um, I never thought that I would be saying this, but Queer Twitter is literally the only place to be. Like, if you're not there, like, what are you doing? Um, And when I was fundraising to try and keep this podcast alive, um, everybody contributed their nudes and what we call lewds and hofos um, to get this show back on the motherfucking road, you feel? So, um, if you would like to get in on the fun... Um, I'm kind of changing up what the Patreon looks like, but um, I definitely know that you're going to have access to content before everyone else. And number two, um, lots of sexy pictures. They're not up there yet, but we're going to be working on that in the months to come because I couldn't just do that shit the one time. Um, And then... Honestly, you're going to have like unedited interviews. So you're going to hear the shit that we had to cut um, because it was maybe fascinating and fucking classic and brilliant. But, um, you know, people have short attention spans, except for you, because you um, have a bigger brain.
that's not science. Um, but please join us on Patreon. Um, if you just search patreon.com slash milleniagram, um, join our posse, $1, $5, like whatever you can do. Um, it really keeps our show on the road. The majority of our patrons are $1 and $5 donors, and I fucking love that shit because it means that um, capitalism is sucking us all dry, and yet we are doing you know, giving our widows fucking might to keep alive the things that we love. And I'm grateful to contribute to one of the things that you love. Let's continue writing this story together. Patreon.com slash Milleniagram. Go find it, hun. So I would say, and this is, this is kind of, I'm just thinking of this now. A lot of the listeners to my podcast in particular, um, have had experiences in the past with religious trauma. Um, so even if they had mm-hmm. safe and present parents, there was this underlying sense yeah. of everything is not safe. Um, everything is not okay. Yeah. One misstep could end in eternal mm-hmm. conscious torment mm-hmm. for you. Um, is there... Oh, yeah, it's God, very, totally. It's horrifying. But um, yeah, what, what would you... Is there... What would you suggest for people like that who are trying to trying to sort of reset the foundation with which they look at the world because their foundation has been that I am not ever safe Mm -hmm. yeah yeah right oh god that is so difficult yeah I think religious trauma is something that doesn't get talked about enough because it obviously it can end up being sexual trauma it can end up being um, emotional abuse. It can be a lot of things, but the, the sort of like existential or like spiritual trauma is the piece that doesn't get talked about enough about like how it affects the way that you think about yourself, what, how you see the world, like your belief about your higher power. Um, yeah, those, those are some really big formative, um, concepts that hopefully kids are encouraged to feel, you know, like thinking about like even like original sin, you know, like, it's this belief that you're bad no matter what. Like, what the <laughs> There's no getting away from it. Like, that's so toxic. It's so bad. So I think, you know, it's, it looks, again, it looks different for everybody. I think like, um, you know, I grew up in a, in a religious community that was very toxic mm. and very abusive. And so my process with that has been completely extricating myself from that and being able to look at it from the outside, so whether it's like not going to, you know, church or synagogue or like a center anymore, and just looking at it from an outside perspective yeah. and looking at it like you have never been inside of it before and looking at it from face value and being like, oh, these are the things that this place advocates for, or this is the beliefs that they tell you about. And if you're looking at it from an outside perspective, you're like, that's crazy and really not okay. Right. Um, and so removing yourself from it helps you see it more clearly. And then you can start to sort of break down the core beliefs that were formed when you were, when you had no choice whether or not to be there, which is another thing that's really yeah. hard is that a lot of people who go through religious trauma, they didn't have a choice to be there. Um, and so once you're able to like really get away from it, then you can start to be like, okay, so if this is, if they believe that you're bad, no matter what, then, um, or like for, you know, in my case, it was like, if you're not part of this religious group, then you're living in a fake reality. And right. I, and being able to like get away from that and be like, if, if the rest of the world is the fake reality and it means not having to deal with this stuff, then I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, and just really getting to like, like, like really removing yourself and then starting to like unpack all the things that you learned there and finding the place that it came from within that belief system and kind of like finding the cracks mm. Um, so I think that's like part of it. That's like the more like cognitive brain work. And then like the more somatic physical stuff would be like, okay, what are the ways that I feel about my body? Like, how does this show up in my body? What are some new experiences I can give my body that will, uh, sort of like mismatch the experience I had at that religious institution? Um, so, so just giving, or even like if there's a, a spiritual place that you might want to go where you could have a positive experience, um, getting to have a positive experience, even if it's like going into nature and sitting next to the ocean, like whatever, getting to have some sort of higher, um, like spiritual experience and having it be positive, I think is, would also be something that would be really helpful. Ooh, yeah. Cause I think that, that spiritual need still wants to be filled somehow. 
Um, and I think a lot of us who are survivors of religious trauma just tend to like cut that off completely, cut off that That's that exactly right, yes. Because it feels like extricating yeah. yourself yeah. from from the experience, yeah. and it is in a way. Um, but yeah, I think finding ways to, to sort of feed that desire um, that exists outside of the religious yeah. system can be helpful. Totally. I think that's why people really like, you know, um, again, like personality patterns or astrology or tarot. There are these really, really spiritually neutral um, ways of connecting. Yeah. Right. That don't necessarily aren't really connected to a particular um, like religious institution. Mm. What would you say about um, I've noticed a lot especially with other religious trauma survivors is that we tend to find one another and then we tend to kind of just sit in our hurt and our bitterness and sort of mm-hmm. sort of just stay there for years on end um and I totally yeah. understand how finding one another and that feel that sensation of I'm not crazy um can be helpful um but it seems like we can sort of tend to keep ourselves in this closed loop of um Mm, of pain i guess for lack of a better word yeah no it's very true um i think as soon as it feels safe and so again if like if you're in a place where you're like nope still doesn't feel safe um so again educating yourself building coping tools unpacking beliefs that you learned about yourself from whatever traumatic environment you were in. So like once you have that, those sort of building blocks, then it is about introducing new experiences. So like, can you get a tarot reading? Um, Like, so uh, like that's like a sort of like safe exposure. So I'm not saying like go walk into, you know, like a church, but like, can you do something spiritual that is not going to necessarily bump up against your trauma so much, maybe a little bit, but not all the way. And, um, and ease back in. So like, yeah, maybe it's a tarot reading. Maybe it's reading your, your horoscope. Again, maybe it's like taking a walk in the woods. Maybe it's, um, like reading a Mary Oliver poem. There's so much shit out there that's so spiritual, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, connected to a particular institution. Um, and so then just getting to sort of, again, like repattern, rewrite your narratives around spirituality. And for some people, they're like, science is my spirituality. And like, Or, you know, like, I think a lot about how, like, to me, psychotherapy is my spirituality in a lot of ways. Like, I believe in the ability for people to heal through relationships. That's the core of my spirituality. And so when I think about, like, people who, like, need something more, like, people who turn to religion because they need some more meaning in their lives, I think that I really believe that our brain, our body, nature, and connections with each other is enough. I don't think we actually need these institutions necessarily Um, I think a lot of people get community there. And if that's what you're looking for, that's fine. And you can go do that. And I'm not shaming anybody. Um, And like for me being able to walk back in, you know, to a synagogue that is um, queer friendly has been really powerful. So I'm not knocking going to a place. I'm just saying that I think when people look at religion as a way where it's like this is I need this or I'm going to have no meaning in life. I think that's a really bad way to go about it. There's a lot of ways to get meaning and that it should be like a cherry on top of like some part of your identity or like a, a spiritual experience. But like when it's your only thing or your main thing, it, you have, you are more likely to um, maybe have your boundaries crossed or, um, or not be able to be as true to yourself. Perhaps if it was like a part of you and not every part. Sure. Of you. Sure. Um, so I, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of pivoting. I'd love to hear a little bit about, Mm-hmm. My my primary fascination and interest um, is understanding how we as people relate to one another, um, and so the whole the whole concept of co regulation versus being dysregulated mm-hmm. in relationship has come up, and I I feel like I'm only just starting to scratch the surface of what those things mean. But I wonder if you could um, yeah. if you could define what co regulation is in relationship. Mm-hmm. Totally. So we need people. It's just like a fact. Yeah. <laughs> like we, we just need other people. 
And one of the reasons for that is that our nervous systems can auto-regulate, so they can regulate like 100% on their own without any help from another person. They can regulate with a dog, they can regulate with the ocean. Like we're very good at, at finding other ways to regulate, but there really is this very healing opportunity that we get when we get to feel synced up, attuned to, connected with another person, which is why falling in love feels so amazing, why like your friends are so important to you, why people like stick around with their family even though they're being bad to Mm -hmm. them. You know, there's like, we really, really need other people. And um, we need to be seen. We need to feel cared for by someone else. It's just, it like just is a fact. And I do really love... um, like Brene Brown's work around this where she's she talks a lot about like like belonging is so important connection is so important um but the theory that I really that resonates with me the deepest is the polyvagal theory which is um this (laughs) yeah it's polyvagal um yeah is the theory that the part of our nervous system that is the most regulating for us lights up when we connect with others Mm. and so we really do need to be in relationship with other people to get that specific ventral vagal part of our nervous system connection and again we can still have that activated by connecting with our inner child connecting with our pet connecting with the forest it doesn't have to be another person i think ideally it's all of them i think we have like the opportunity to self-connect to connect with the planet, to connect with animals, and to connect with people. I think that's, or even like to connect with spirituality. Sure. Like I would say a combination of all of those is is really, really important. Um, but that a lot of trauma survivors who've experienced trauma interpersonally, they're like, oh, I just don't need people anymore. I have my pet or I have, you know, myself. Um, and I really understand that. And there's been parts of my life where I have really felt that way. But it is so important to eventually be able to come back to connecting with other human animals um, and getting to have that particular connection because it is, it's healing in a really specific way, especially if you've had attachment trauma. Mm. So getting to have safe attachments after experiencing attachment trauma is incredibly healing, especially for those of us that have trauma around. That. Yeah. Um, what would you say to, so something that I've run into a lot is um, it's really easy for me, um, it's really easy for me to build relationships with people who have a secure attachment style on some level because my anxiety and my avoidance is less triggered Mm -hmm. by that Um, but then sometimes um, trying to build relationships with others who are also very traumatized can be difficult because it seems Mm -hmm. like one of us get trigger gets triggered then the other one gets triggered by that triggering and it's like we just continue to Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, we just continue this dysregulated pattern, I guess. And I hate that that would have to be the case in relationship. I know that, I know that it can be healed. Um, but it, I've, I've recognized that as a challenge in my personal relationships. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's like, everybody (laughs) has that. Like, I just want to normalize that. It's like literally everybody, like how any relationship goes is just like triggering each other back and forth until you uncover what that's about. So like <laughs> something that I think is really helpful is um, is really understanding and knowing about your partner's childhood. Mm. Um, and so being like, so that you find out like who you are to them. Like when you trigger them, like, are you mom? Are you sister? Are you teacher? Like wow. who are you in that moment? Who are you triggering? And maybe it's not a particular person. Maybe it's just a belief that was formed in childhood, I'm not good enough, whatever. So like really like having those very in-depth conversations with your partners around what your triggers are, where they come from, who, how do I bring that out? Like who, um, how do I fall into the trigger trap? Like what, you know, what does that look like when I just like say exactly the wrong thing or I hurt you in exactly the way that your mother did? Like, what does that look Mm. like? Um, and then I think also for us, like we have to have the answers. So doing your own, again, like internal work about being like, okay, when my partner does blank, it triggers this part of me, which makes sense because of my childhood or because of my past relationships, like blah, blah, blah. So like, we have to do the work too. And then we also have to do the, the co-work. Um, and I really like the Imago theory and any sort of like Imago material, whether it's like a workbook or a, or the book, Getting the Love You Want, which is the, the core Imago text. The anecdotes are incredibly normative and like straight and 
monogs and I just would ignore every case example in that book. <laughs> but the theory is really helpful, which is that we pick people that remind us in some way. It could be as nuanced as the way that they smell or it could be the way that they treat us. We pick people in some way that remind us of something or someone in our in our lives. It could be a past partner. It could be a caregiver. Usually it's a caregiver. And we hope to heal whatever sort of rupture we've had with a caregiver, with our partners, but usually we just end up triggering the shit out of each other. <laughs> and so oh, you, wow. if you bring that consciousness mm-hmm. to the relationship, this is another thing I really like the book, um, Conscious Loving, okay. it's a couples therapy book. That's great. Um, the case examples again are like, eh, so, so, but there's a lot of like somatic um, examples in there. And um, I do like that book a lot. So Conscious Loving is like, we end up in these relationships where that are really unconscious. We like go into love very unmindfully and we're just like, well, I like you and we have great sex. So I guess we're together. And then two years in, you're sitting in couples therapy because you've never had a serious conversation about your childhood or about your triggers Mm. or about like, what do I want in this relationship? How do I need to feel safe? So it's also just about opening those lines of communication. Uh, But those two books I do find to be really helpful. Um, And if, and if something keeps happening, if there's a pattern in the relationship, you know, talk about it you're you're reenacting something for some reason and it's it's doing something for both of you and it's good that it's happening because it means if it's a healthy enough relationship it means that there's an opportunity to heal something that has been hurt a really long time ago Mm. the thing that doesn't work is that if you're in a relationship where you all are triggering each other all the time and it feels really unhealthy and toxic and even like bordering on abusive or abusive that there's like there are some relationships you just have to walk away from and just that are not going to work and that, that's a really hard thing, but I think it's something that we don't talk enough about, is that not all couples therapy theories apply to every couple because not every couple should be working on themselves. <laughs> they should just not They should just be not together. be. Um, is there, I mean, I'm sure it, it depends from couple to couple, but are there, are there like warning signs that we should look out for? Like if maybe this is just too far on the toxic spectrum? Uh-huh. Um, if you can't, if you feel like you can't have those conversations, um, if you don't feel heard, if you feel like you have to be perfect for your partner, I mean, obviously these are all things that you can also address, I think. But, um, if your partner is resistant to couples therapy or talking about these things and you can't, then there's nothing you can do. If your partner's not going to read a book, if your partner's not going to go to therapy, if they are like completely resistant to any of that, then what change can happen? I don't know. Um, or uh, I think like couples where it's like, um, I think it's the willingness to change. If people aren't willing to change and if people aren't willing to work on it, then I don't know how that, how there can be change if they're not. Right. If they're not willing. Or if you, or if you get so, if your partner triggers you so deeply in this one particular way, and that is something that will always be the case and it will always be something that is difficult for you. I don't know. Um, it obviously really, really depends. But I think that sometimes, um, couples will look at a lot of books that are available or um, relationship theories that are available and try and apply it to them and it doesn't really even apply. So like Mm. I'm thinking about people who are are violent communicators who try and use nonviolent communication, for example, and they end up using the language of that to be further violent to their partners. Like that's never going to work. Yeah. So people really do have to do their own work. I mean, I don't think, I think that if people are ever going to do couples therapy or any sort of couples work, they need to be in their own therapy and have done like a a pretty like strong amount of their own work before even embarking on that journey. Mm, Okay. Interesting. Um, So it sounds like the willingness to change and the curiosity into your partner or your friend's experience um, both Uh really need to be there. Um. Yes, totally. So the, the yeah. last thing that I wanted to ask you yeah. about, um, I'm really excited yeah. about your um, uh, the, the content that you've been creating around BDSM um, and around kink. Cool. And, um, and I, it's, it's something that I have, I have just started to explore in terms of how, how could um, putting myself in a position that, that seems it's that seems similar to abuse that I've suffered somehow be life-giving, but it feels like it might be. Uh-huh. Um, and so yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear um, how the, I think you call them mm-hmm. altered states, um, mm-hmm. like playing mm-hmm. different roles, how that can help us to reset neural pathways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So 
You know, altered states are places in which our nervous systems and our neural pathways can shift and change. And that happens in therapy sessions. That happens, um, you know, in, uh, in relationships. It's, it happens, like, during sex. It happens during cuddling. It happens during, like, getting a hug from your friend. Like, it, it can, we can really access that altered place, meditation, yoga, whatever. Like, we can go there a lot of places, and I think the the work that I'm trying to do with um, my collaborator, Mistress Danielle Blunt, is that kink is another way to access that place of change. And because of, you know, the shaming culture that we live in, we just haven't given it the same weight as other things. When we're so happy to talk about this somatic practice or that somatic practice where change can happen. <laughs> right. And we're so resistant to adding BDSM to be one of those practices when they're like so close to being... You know, like they're so similar and there's so much opportunity for change there. So, you know, that's the altered state aspect. And then the the recreating something traumatic or recreating some aspect of a trauma through kink as a way to come out on the other side of it with a change is what in um, in a lot of somatic therapy is called a mismatch. So you give yourself a different ending. You give yourself a different experience. And so if in the past your um, your trauma was around not being cared for and then you have this you know, seeing at the end you are cared for to the most extreme level, that's a mismatch. And that can happen outside of kink. It doesn't have to be kink, but it's another way to access that. And the reason that kink is such a great container is that it acknowledges power dynamics. It incorporates the body. It uh, doesn't involve screens. It's mostly free unless you're seeing a professional, which you totally should if you feel like you want that experience. Um, But it's really accessible for people who can't afford necessarily to see a somatic therapist. I'm not saying like, if you can't afford therapy, like you should be kinky, but if you are kinky and you, you know, and you want to have a somatic experience, like this is a way that you can do it. And I'm just validating that it is a somatic experience as well, along with having, um, yeah, like having any sort of other healing work happen. But when we get to have a new experience, we heal. And so getting to have that care at the end of a scene or getting to choose something that has happened to us before, and before it was non-consensual, to make it consensual and have it be pleasurable and have it be exciting and have it be sexy is very healing. And that is so, again, adaptive. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, specifically thinking about consensual non-consent and fantasies that involve, um, that, you know, involve, t- like, the lack of consent. Again, there's actually even more consent than I would say in other things, but there's the illusion of there not being consent. Sure. Um, is one of the most common fantasies amongst, like, Everybody, like it's, it's something that we all are fantasizing about, and it, it's for a reason. It's because we're trying to make sense, you know. Sex and play helps us make sense of the world, um, and it helps us make sense of our experience. Mm. And so it makes sense that we we might want to experiment or play around with this very universal experience. Wow, I it's so interesting because you talked about, and I know I've experienced um, trying to replay traumatic experiences to get a different ending. So for me, that meant. Mm-hmm. Yep. After after surviving a significant trauma, putting myself in these dangerous situations to almost sort of hope for a yeah. different outcome. Um, and it's yeah. almost like yep. um, kink is a safe place to actually do that, to, to, do to create that, that yes, mismatch exactly. that you're mentioning um, without the re-traumatization. Um, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And also like, because I'm also a sex educator, I'm not just a trauma therapist, like, it's also can be really hot and bright. Like, it doesn't have to be so serious. <laughs> and that's something that I, I think I forget to talk enough about, is, like, it's pleasurable for some people to have their power taken away from them or to play with power, and that's fine. As long as it's consensual and everybody is, like, on the same page and there is care given, that's okay. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, well, Andrea, I'm so grateful to get the chance to talk to you and thank you for coming. Thank you. Same. Where can people find you and where would you like them to find you on the internet? Yeah. Yeah, totally. So folks can find me on Instagram at somatic, Witch. um, they can also find me on my website, Andrea Glick. That's G L I K no C.com. And I have workshops available there online, um, for download and, um, if you're in New York City and you're looking for a therapist, I have a wait list that I open and close sporadically depending on the length. Um, and I do at, right now I'm only seeing people in person, but you never know. 
Um, so folks can contact me through my website for those, for all that information. Wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much, Andrea, and can't wait to share this thank you. with our listeners. Oof, okay, that was a lot, um, but I believe in us. Um, I want to continue this conversation because I feel like we gave you some cool tidbits and now we need to go out into the world. We need to work this shit out. We need to see how it all plays into our lives, into our numbers, into our interactions with the people around us. So hit me up on Twitter at Hannah Posh, H-A-N-N-A-H-P-A-A-S-C-H. And let's talk about what respect and control look like in both our parenting relationships, in our reparenting relationships with our younger selves and how that plays out. Hit me up. Let's keep the conversation rolling, folks. I'm excited. We out.